Greetings from Kiev. I'm your host, the one and only Terrell Starr, and welcome to another episode of Black Diplomats. So let's just talk about this off the bat, right? So I know that Joe Biden said that Americans should leave immediately, but I'm staying put, at least for now. People have to know that this is not my first time at the rodeo and I've been to a country that Putin has invaded before and as long as Russia exists, this is not going to be the last time I experienced this so I really appreciate everyone's concern but I'm not going anywhere at the moment. I will be fine. Let's get into today's show. We are discussing Russian colonialism, not only against Ukraine but within its own borders as well. Here to help us break down what that means is Alexander Itkind, professor of Russian history at European University Institute in Italy. Itkind's work focuses on Russian colonialism and empire, particularly Russian politics and Moscow's relations with Europe, among many other subjects that he specializes in. And we also have Maxim Erastavi, a Ukrainian-Georgian journalist whose work explores the intersection of identity politics, disinformation, and Russian colonialism, which he tweets a lot about on Twitter. All right, y'all, let's start the show. Yeah, I'm greetings from Kiev, everybody, and um, we all know what's going on with Ukraine right now. And one of the things that I love about Twitter is that I get to bring on uh, very smart people who I follow and who follow me. And Russian colonialism is one of those hot button issues that evokes a lot of passions and emotions out of people in the academic field and journalists, etc. But I just love the fact that we can get off Twitter and I can just have some one-on-one conversations with folks where we can break down things beyond this, beyond the uh, Twitter sound bites. And so, Alexander and Maxime, you're the two smartest people I know about this subject. And so, I'm happy that you're on. But um, before we really get into this heavy topic, I want to start off with you, Alexander. How are you feeling? I'm fine. I'm now uh, in beautiful Florence, and the weather is really good here. And that's basically all that I need. But I'm really happy that you found me on Twitter and uh, happy to see you in Kiev. And uh, I'm, I'm slightly concerned about how you're doing there. But as you said, everything is calm. And that's very good news. Yeah, it's calm from the perspective of, hey, what, what can people do, you know? Um, because Ukrainians have been dealing with this Russian occupation for eight years now. And so... Yeah, what can you do? One one of the joys that I have, and it's a very lighthearted one, is I have this red coat with a white um, coyote fur collar, and little kids stop me, even adults, they stop me and say, oh, you're Santa Claus, can I take a photo? And, you know, it's just this interesting backdrop uh, given everything that's going on. So if I can bring some joy, even just for that moment, to a person here, that just makes me feel good. So Maxine, brother... My my brother from another mother, how are you? Hey, um, always, first of all, always happy to hear your voice or talk to you or do anything. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm good. I'm a bit disoriented and feel weird because I got my booster uh, yesterday and I feel still a bit of effects, but it's also also a happy occasion. 
um yeah and uh i'm happy that you're in kiev and you can always report and tell people how it's like not very healthy to be alarmist all the time and how life goes on despite everything and uh, i think it's important to center ourselves in reality rather than uh, this insane thing that is happening on twitter in american news and other places where you can get kind of idea that maybe everything is on fire people are running around crazy with panic losing their shit which is definitely not the case yeah it's definitely not the case and one of the reasons why i come over here is that i can tell people from the ground what is actually happening and i have to admit to you that i myself don't even watch media not because i have something against mainstream media. I don't listen. I'm a journalist myself, and I cover politics in America at the highest level. And my work does operate in this, you know, this American mainstream media space. But I think, from an international standpoint, it's good to come down, and also just with my own politics, right? And I can understand Ukraine in ways that many people in my profession, uh, particularly, um, you know, me being a black person. I have a particular lens to understand Ukraine through, which is why we're talking about, you know, this conversation from the perspective of colonialism, but also the fact that I have a human centered approach to my journalism. I understand that I have a particular status or dare I say a bit of a privilege as an American journalist who can come here. Right. Um, and be able to tell a lot of people, uh, particularly a lot of journalists who follow me on Twitter, what's really going on and people listen to me. My spaces today about Ukraine, why should black people care about Ukraine? There were more than 700 people on that spaces, which is a lot of people because I don't have any think tank support or anything. It's just me doing this. And so it made me feel really good to help raise awareness about what's happening in this country, because at the end of the day, it's human beings here. And there are people here who I consider family and Maxime, I consider you one of those people. And it's personal for me because I care about people who are here, you know? Well, I think it's really, it's, it is a privilege to be in a, in a, in a country which uh, is undergoing serious issues. Um, I'm a historian and I know very well that, uh, you know, if there is a military conflict, then, uh, uh, in a defeated country, so the voice of uh, one country uh, is winning and another feels uh, experiences defeat. And that country uh, has, that failed in the war would uh, perform important reforms. There will be lots of prog progress there in terms of whatever economics or intellectual life or culture or art. Well, the country that would uh, win and, uh, you know, gain new colonies and uh, maybe amass new wealth or, or booties or things like that, uh, it will be stagnating. That's, uh, I, I wouldn't say that's a law, there, is, there are no laws really in history, but that happens very yeah. often. And I'm a Russian historian, so I know that it did happen to Russia many times, that after defeat, it was fine, actually. That was something that we would actually, all of all three of us would call progress. But after a victory, that was stagnation or yeah. down. Much of your work deals with researching Russia in this in this relationship with its neighbors and there, you know, and also colonies to be more direct. 
um, via this colonial lens. And a lot of people don't see it that way. And I've seen a lot, I've seen you go back and forth with a lot of people on Twitter about why you use the term um, colonialism when you describe Russia's relationship um, with its colonies. And so I want to ask you why we should um, view Russia's reign over Ukraine, for example, as a form of settler colonialism. Well, probably everyone knows from whatever, from uh, from history, you know, not everyone studies history nowadays, but um, but the fact that Russia was, was an empire and that there was such thing as that was officially called the Russian Empire, and that was you know the Russian Emperor who called Peter the Peter the Great who called himself the Emperor and his country the Empire. Probably many people know that. So what is empire? Basically, I, I understand that there are no, there were and there are actually no empires without colonies and no colonies without empires. These are like two tightly connected concepts. So if um, someone acknowledges that Russia was an empire, or also there are some you know cr critical minds who think that Russia still is an empire. And then, of course, it's a logical conclusion that, yes, Russia had or has colonies. Um, but, you know, to me, this sounds very simple and straightforward. But indeed, as you say, um, as you said, there are many people who somehow managed to think otherwise, that, you know, that there was the Russian Empire, that there was the Soviet Union. Now there is the Russian Federation, but no colonialism whatsoever. It's, it's interesting, though, because your right to me is very clear. Um, but, Maxime, I want to follow up with you about this because you spent a lot of time on Twitter discussing this. And um, I'm really happy that we could talk about it now. Uh, you have a very unique background. You're Georgian and you're Ukrainian. And so um, and you work in journalism. And so I know you get into it, too, with a lot of your peers. And so can you just explain to me why you're so passionate about framing this through the lens of settler, of, of, of uh, Russian colonialism using that language? Well, you rightly point out that I'm not an academic, I'm not a researcher. This is not something um, that, you know, not, in, uh, not a thing that I study so much. And I think uh, it's been a journey for me. It was a journey for me to connect the dots about the events, violent events that were happening to me, to my country through all my life. Why am I faced with corruption and poverty? Why my language is being uh, humiliated and diminished? Why my identity is not valued as equal identity, uh, ethnicity to uh, Russian, for example? While I'm why I'm facing with uh, systemic homophobia and stuff like that. So all these kind of things that I were like facing since I was a kid, at some point I started thinking, okay, this could not be just some uh, disconnected, disjoint acts of evilness. Um, there must be a system behind it. There must be a reason why it is happening. And it's probably that reason dates back centuries. Um, and that's where my journey took me to see a history, what happened to my country and to my people through a bit deeper perspective than just a news cycle or just a story or just, a, you know, uh, my own story. 
And colonialism helped me to connect those dots. And suddenly when I start seeing things through that uh, deeper perspective, historical perspective of colonialism, what Russia has done to my people and my country through centuries, a lot of things started making much more sense. And it helped me to also make sense of things that happened to my life, to me, to my country. Um, I'm not saying that it fixes everything and uh, it's still quite uh, bad. And this is not something that happened in the past colonialism, Russian colonialism keeps happening as we speak and keeps pillaging my own country as we speak. But nevertheless, uh, yeah, it became clearer. It became much easier to explain to everyone else and connect with others because we share a lot of colonial baggage, whether you come from America or you know Africa, Australia, or somewhere else. This is integral part to our history, very dark one uh, still though. Uh, and this is uh, helpful for me as a storyteller to interest other people in my own story and saying like, hey, this is somewhere where I can build bridge to you and explain why what I am going through uh, has relation uh, to what your people went through as well. Yeah, absolutely. And Maxime, uh, I, you hit it right on the button. I feel like there are some connections and even in your work, Alexander, um, we're going to talk about this in the in the um, in the in the episode where you draw some parallels, which I totally agree with. And. I want to specifically ask you about empire, right? And how that ties into colony, because from my research and what I'm reading, much of Ukraine was brought into the Russian empire through Catherine the Great, you know? And so that's a history there. And so I just want you to get deeper into how Russia, um, and I'm going to say this, um, I have Michael McFall on my, um, I have Michael McFall on my, um, podcast he says that putin for example looks at the world particularly ukraine and belarus through ethnic lens and he said this after meeting with him numerous times he said something to me that was very powerful and he said that he was sitting in a meeting with he and joe biden were sitting in a meeting talking to putin this is going to tie in, i want to say if this makes sense to you so we can tie the empire but he said putin ran his finger across his white skin and he's and Putin said, you know what your problem is, you Americans. You look at he's verbatim from Michael McFall. You can listen to it tomorrow. He said, according, he said, Putin said that you all think that we think alike. But we don't. We're not you. And my, what Michael McFall took from that was, hey, we're not white people. We are slobs. And he drew it into this idea that. You know, yeah, we had the Central Asians and we had the people from Georgia, but the people who are really ours, using this possessive word, ours, the Belarusians and the Ukrainians. And he's and Putin has this kind of revisionist history about how that started. But that's just I wanted to introduce that to you and get your thoughts. But also, if you can um, start off with how the imperial history has treated Ukraine. Empires, you know, that's uh, that's uh, the whole history is about this uh, fights between one people and another. You know, people, you know, peoples are different. People are different, and and different peoples are all different. And 
always one one people wanted to execute some power and get some benefit meaning exploitation and all that from uh, another people and then that lot of people would rebel somehow think about jesus christ he was a colonial rebel who was you know pro making prophecies and organizing uh, riots against the powerful empire very distant empire which executed power in his uh, little colony and uh, here we go you know that was and uh, so I, I actually think that uh, lots of um, great thinking was conceived and uh, was done in this colonial situation somehow that's this you know being oppressed provided that you survive of course but then being this uh, oppression is a very favorable very very fertile ground for forward-looking thinking. Also, uh, I did some research on uh, Immanuel Kant, you, you know, great philosopher, Kant. So, you know, you know that he was, uh, he, he lived all his life in his city, Kenigsberg, now called Kaliningrad. Mm -hmm. He never left it. But, uh, so how, how did he know about the world? His philosophy is very worldly. So there was uh, there was uh, several years when the Russian Empire occupied and annexated uh, Eastern Russia, and um, Russian troops, imperial troops, came to uh, Königsberg and uh, declared that Königsberg would, would be the, a Russian land forever. Uh, in in the co contemporary language, we would call it colony. And uh, Kant was a young professor, he, uh, we would call him tenure-track professor, he just started teaching in the University of Königsberg. And um, he lived for five years, he, he lived and taught under the Russian occupation. And it was not an, just an occupation, it was annexation. It was like what the Crimea is now, or what Kaliningrad is now, under the Russian power forever. But of course, in that that was the time when Russian troops just stayed there until the Empress Elizabeth died. And when Elizabeth died, the troops were suddenly withdrawn. And Kant sort of had his main political experience from this absolutely senseless, meaningless change of history that, you know, that just happened to him and to his compatriots. And then after the troops left, and there was kind of national revival in Prussia, he, he just boosted with creativity. He published his critics and all that. So, so the you know Christ or um, Kant or say the great Russian writer Nikolai Gogol, who was of course from Ukraine and he was an actually, actually a Ukrainian writer, but he contributed his great masterpieces in Russian language. And there were many other Russian writers, great Russian or Soviet writers, such as say, Mikhail Bulgakov or Anna Akhmatova, very famous Soviet They did write in Russian, but they were born in Ukraine. They sort of had their fantasies and nostalgia for, for the Ukrainian motherland and things like that. And uh, so, so a very simple point is that this um, kind of growing up developing uh, thinking in the situation of imperial oppression, being a colonial subject is a very fertile 
situation for for much else. When I when we talk about colonialism and I use this lens, I'll tell you the reason why I use it. One, I understand it and I understand what colonialism is and Alexander is right. And you know, it was a it was an interesting snip to say, hey, we don't teach history anymore. And that's one of the main problems in America. And and I'll tell you like this, I think that the way that people are resistant against um the term Russian colonialism is very similar to how a lot of conservatives in America are resistant to critical race theory. I think that there are many similarities and I always draw my experience as a black person because I understand the dynamics of Russia and Ukraine, et cetera. And even how Russia, as you said, Alexander, um, you know, Hey, Russia went through its own colonization, but we'll talk about that later. Um, Because you wrote about this. But Maxime, I feel like this resistance has a lot to do with just this. I think there's a combination of shame. I think that there is a combination of denial. And already forget about talking about this in Russia because so many freedoms are suppressed. And so tell me, um, you talked about this being a, a, a way of storytelling. But more specifically, how do you talk with your own peers about Russian colonialism so that they can have because so they can have this use this as a form of storytelling to better tell the story because without it I think we misunderstand what's happening in Ukraine yeah absolutely yeah I look I I think colonialism is very loaded term and a lot of people see it very conceptually and for most of people in the west it's not applicable to their lives they've never lived in the situation um especially for a lot of white people they never lived in a situation where somebody would exercise control over their lives of their bodies without uh, even them understanding it. And I think in a nutshell, colonialism is all about that. How do you control someone without them realizing it? Or without them realizing that someone is uh, domineering them? And for a lot of colonial regimes from, you know, starting from Russian to British to whatnot, it's always been not about rolling your tanks or your troops over people and you know killing them and imprisoning them, but creating systems that are very efficient where you can run something, a vast land with very limited resources and you know with very limited financial uh, or human resources and extract back much, much more. This is the ideal colonial situation. But how do you do that so that people do not rebel every day? So there are not rebellions, so people do not uh, kill uh, colonial troops and stuff like that. You insert, you construct a system, a system that makes you, those people to believe that they're, you know, not oppressed or this is the way things are and nothing's going to change. And, you know, this is for their own better, you know, future, for their own better ways. And I think this what led me to into this topic, because when I start making sense about things that happen to my people and to me and connecting the dots and starting seeing the system behind it, it helped me to liberate my own views about, you know, myself in first place and to see the domineering that is happening 
in each and every aspect of that life through kleptocracy, through, um, you know, through homophobia, through economic domineering, political and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, it's, it's something that I, I think that helps bring people on board with this idea, how do I apply it to my uh, life? And you were right, Tarell, when you talked about your own experience in, experiences living in the States as a Black man, where you have the whole power structures in place that keep you uh, in submission without explicitly saying so. But you can see them. And once you start realizing that there exists, this is your first step towards liberation. And I think Russia uh, invested so much money and resources over centuries to hide that truth, to make sure that even Ukrainians do not see what, what is, has been happening to them for almost 400 years as a colonial rule. And that's why this topic is still so, um, you know, it's not as mainstream as it should be, uh, because there's been a lot of resources spent to hide that from, uh, from everyone else. Because once you're exposed, it's much more expensive to run a colonial empire. One, but once you're exposed, uh, it's just basically probably decades before it collapses because people will start rebelling. Yeah, that, see, that's the good point. And I want to go to you, Alexander, because... You wrote in uh, Eurozine, I believe that's the way you pronounce this publication, in 2013 about your book, and it's called Internal Colonization, Russia's Imperial Experience. And it basically traces how the Russian Empire conquered foreign territories and domesticated <laughs> um, its own heartlands. That's an interesting word, domesticated its own heartlands, thereby colonizing many peoples, Russians included. Russians included. Explain that, please. Yes, indeed, and that's uh, that's. <laughs> I wrote about it. I wrote a book about that, and of course, then I sort of reported about this book in, in Eurozine. But please consult my book. It was published in 2011 in uh, you know Polish Press and Wiley. Uh, that's you know English American production, uh, widely available. Look. Um, back to your question and also back to what Maxim said that that was very well put that uh, Russia spent lots of resources for denying this ethnic and other differences but also uh, Russia earned lots and is earning lots and lots of millions and billions uh, by uh, exploiting natural resources that build to someone else uh, to say to some you know to say we, we know where, where russian russian money come from from siberia from west siberia that's oil um and gas uh, which really covers you know the, 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 all this russian expenditures nowadays uh, in ukraine and belarus but um, but also in chechnya and and everywhere else including say russia today and yeah where, where, where money come from when they come, you know, do they come from, from the Kremlin? No, they come to the Kremlin first, from West Siberia. And, um, uh, and so what, what, is, what, what was West Siberia? Did it, you know, did it, has it ever belonged to Russia? No, of course, not now it does belong to Russia, like Kaliningrad belongs to Russia. Um, 
but at some point it was uh, taken by the Cossacks, by the Russian soldiers, by the fur traders, and, the, 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 and this is what I'm looking at uh, this process uh, in my book, Internal Colonization. So the, the primary motivation was fur trade. So, so because fur, like sable, was a precious uh, resource, the northern gold. And um, the entrepreneurs, uh, uh, first, first like three Cossacks, but very soon the soldiers sent by the state occupied uh, the slums and, and forests and uh, killed all the sable and they, then they had to go farther and farther east. And then uh, what happened then? So the, the, then say this huge, huge expanse of Siberia, it was annexated. What, what has been annexation? So first, first occupation, first military occupation. This is some, something that we see now, say, in Donbass. So the military come, they sort of control the land, they use the local uh, support, uh, which people whom they bribe or hire or, or force to, to, to help them. Uh, in order to do something, in, either in order to exploit resources, say fur or oil or coal, or to create some kind of bu buffer space for strategic military purposes or something like that. But so that's first, that's the first stage is called occupation. Then there is colonization when this uh, new, new regime of controlling the land, you know, takes with, with time, there are some institutions created, some kind of viceroy or something like that, you know, like in India, British viceroy or general governor. And, uh, uh, and annexation, which means that the, uh, this uh, newly acquired territory gets a legal status. So with annexation, say the Crimea, unlike Donbass, but the Crimea was annexed, or Kaliningrad at some point, you know, after World War II was annexed. So from now on, uh, this is a, a, the, the, this occupation and colonization gets a legal legal framework. It could be recognized by other countries, as it happened with Kaliningrad. In some cases, it does it's not recognized as it happens with, with the Crimea. But it, so there are different stages of this occupation, colonization, annexation. Now, Siberia, Siberia was kind of occupied, annexated this huge land. But the but for sable, say, was exterminated. There was nothing else there. There was, there was lots of timber, but it was impossible to bring this timber, you know, and trade it as they are doing now. Like, no, there was no tradable resource anymore. So people were kind of struggling. So Siberia was used like as a place for exile, for instance. That was one use, one function that, you know, the empire found there. But so, so what happens? So there, there was this huge, uh, empty space that belonged to the empire, but was had no real use and no population. But the endemic people, reindeers, you know, all these people, you know, the Yakuts, the Chukchi, etc., etc., there were like 200 ethnic 
ethnicities populating Siberia, but they didn't pay the tribute, they didn't pay the taxes, they, they, they were useless for the empire. So through centuries, the empire was doing this colonization of its internal lands that it had already acquired again and again. That was a colonization within the legally recognized domain. It already belonged to the empire, but it had to be colonized and then colonized again and again. And what you say, what you say is basically like the way that America colonized and killed off the uh, indigenous um, communities there. Same thing, right? Yeah. In, in America, you call it the frontier, and uh, and uh, in, uh, in in Russia they call it Siberia. But but that was the eastern frontier um, uh, of the Russian Empire. Similar things, not 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 exactly, not quite. But, but would you consider it like a colon? Would you consider it like it, you know? It's a, an example of a settler. It's a different situation, but it's still a settler colonial dynamic, right? Well, so we're, we're talking about settler colonialism when there are actual settlers. Got you. Understood. And for, uh, for, for getting settlers, you need to have something to for them to do, to, to, to do there. You know, So settlers come to Australia, so there is a booming agriculture. Or, you know. Maxime, go ahead. You wanted to say something. Go ahead. The, in case of Crimea, this is, yeah, this is what Sasha is telling about the colonialism that is settler, because Crimea was uh, fully indigenous um, and was populated by uh, indigenous Crimean Tatars um, before Russians came and uh, basically erased them from the um, peninsula and resettled with ethnic Russians at some point. Um, yeah, and you know, looking back in the historic uh, historic documents of uh, Russians in the, in, you know, uh, so, uh, you know, Alexander can correct me, but uh, 17th century, 15th century, going into those indigenous lands in Siberia and doing all kinds of genocides all the time when they meet indigenous settlement. And it was by default, by the rule, uh, to try to kill uh, first male population you know, just to put some settlements into submission and then start negotiating about, you know, doing trade and stuff like that. Absolutely very much similar to what was happening during genocides done to indigenous people in America, all, yeah. all across Americas. Yeah, definitely. But go, go ahead, finish your point, uh, Alexander. Yeah, it was similar, but it was, the, the difference is that it, uh, in Siberia it happened uh, earlier in a sort of more obscure situation. It was very distant land, you know, you cannot go further than Siberia, basically. And uh, there were very few settlers, so they couldn't really kill, uh, unlike in, in America, I think. They, 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 um, they, they had firearms already, but they were very primitive. So th there was lots of killing indeed, but also there was a, there was a lot of mixing with the local population. Uh, you know, social mixing, uh, economic mixing, and the sexual mixing, so... so. Or, or, or let's get to the point, I mean, part of it is mixing, raping in many cases. Raping in many cases, but also marrying. Like, you, you know, in, in America, you know, a, a white pl uh, plantation owner, he would rape or yeah. co cohabitate with a black woman or with many of them. But he would not marry them, and uh, his uh, the offspring would be still slaves. While um, 
in uh, say in Siberia or in the Crimea, it could be you know it could be different. People did marry, so they could be converted. Many of them were converted. Uh, particular children, of course, were converted, but by default, if they were you know uh, creoles, they actually used in Siberia they used this terminology like they would say in Russian creoles. Oh, wow. oh. In Siberian creoles, yeah, like a mix of Bashkir and uh, Russian. So, so they would be they would be baptized, but also some many women could be baptized. Also, some men would be baptized and th things like that. So, uh, it was probably kind of more di diverse picture than what you imagine uh, that you know from in the, from the American South or from Australia. Mm -hmm. So there were elements of genocide, but what, it, it was more diverse. Gotcha. Uh, and. Uh, and that sort of gives, but I mean, there, there, I'm sure that there are also uh, genocide deniers in Australia or in America. Oh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> but this diversified picture in Siberia or in the Crimea, or in Eastern Prussia, for, for instance, you know, in Poland, when uh, Poland was taken by Russian troops. Um, so this di very diverse picture in different regions and in every singular region gave grounds for denial that were kind of, it was easy to deny colonialism in this situation because indeed the processes were more, di more diverse. Got you, got you. Thank, thank you so much. So, you know, Maxime, I have to tell you, I'll tell you about a story. Uh, Back in 2020, I was in the Carpathians, and Maxime knows that's my favorite part of Ukraine. I like to go hiking in the Carpathian Mountains, Not always spend my summers there. I'm going to spend this summer in the Carpathians as well. I go there every summer, spend the whole time there. And I was, and I have a cabin. Uh, it's near about an hour away from Ujgorod, but it's uh, in the, uh, it's high up in the mountains, but, um, but, but at any rate, we were hiking a mountain. I think it was, uh, I forgot the name of it, doesn't matter. But just to give you all a picture, we're going up the mountain and it's really bright and there are blackberries all around us. So we're picking the blackberries just to give you the scene of what's happening. So it's this Ukrainian guy and this black guy and his wife hiking up a mountain in Ukraine picking blackberries and and he says he comes he says Terrell he says um I have a question for you and you know um as I told Alexander I could speak Russian but it's not fluent and so if I need to have some high level political conversation quite frankly I asked somebody to help me translate but I didn't have that with me so I had to pray to black Jesus and hope that I can understand them and fortunately I did get everything he said so Terrell Tell me about the Charlottesville. I've been reading a lot about what's going on in Charlottesville, but you know, you're here and can you help explain it to me? And so I, I spoke to him about it. I just gave him the facts. So uh, about what was happening. And then before I can give him my opinion about Charlottesville, Vova, that was his name. He said, Vova said, oh, these people who are marching in Charlottesville are like the terrorists in Donbass. He used that language. He said, oh, they're terrorists. And <laughs> I said, yes, Vova. Yes, these people in Charlotte, yeah. You know, 
And so he drew a connection and it was just so fascinating to me because I was talking, I was sharing my black experience with racism and he instantly saw the connection. He said, oh, that's straight, that's terrorism, isn't it? And my thought was, I wish that my fellow Americans could appreciate what Volvo was able to conclude. I just wanted to share that with you because I feel like part of why I love being in Ukraine is that I love drawing these parallels and I love when people actually get it. Yeah, but it's it's amazing point as well because this is why, for example, we, you know, me or Alexander, we're sometimes excluded from conversations about colonialism by folks of color who always, you know, very oftentimes tell us that, well, you cannot be part of this conversation because you're white or you, you know, or you pass as white. Um, and this always kind of concerns me a lot because, well, first of all, we shouldn't uh, negate someone's experiences, especially when it comes to someone who lived their lives and they feel that mm -hmm. way. And it's not just a concept or academic construct you discuss or debate. But second of all, because it's kind of probably naive to think that colonialism as, as one of the most efficient economic systems ever existed in the history of humankind was only happening just to communities of color. And if you look around, colonialism, white-on-white -white colonialism, white-on-white -white slavery existed in many places, um, regardless of skin color. Um, you can compare it to Ireland, you can compare it to Scotland, but also in Ukraine. And sometimes the experiences that you have to deal with linked to colonialism, uh, even if you're not a person of color, very eerily resemble the dynamic. I'm not saying it's the same. No, it's not the same. Of course, racism and people of color who face racism cannot compare to um, something that uh, a white person um, as a colonial subject feels. However, the dynamic is often similar. You know, we discussed a lot how uh, modern Russians or Putin do not see Ukrainians as white enough how many Westerners do not see Ukrainians or Georgians or Eastern Europeans as white enough, uh, as white trash, um, not you know, um, subscribing to the ideals of white supremacy or not looking or speaking like uh, a white person would. And I think this is something that people should be more open about. Doesn't mean that if we introduce this to the um, nar narrative about colonialism, it makes suffering of people of color less uh, in proportion. But we faced with the similar shit that other nations faced under the colonial rule, genocides, uh, wars, exploitation, pillage, rape, uh, for the sake of better, um, you know, for the sake of very efficient economic system that would exploit us. So I don't think that we should discard that and just place it exclusively in the racial discourse uh, area. It's, uh, this is unfortunately very dark, but very integral part of human history, regardless of race. You're, yes, you're absolutely correct. Yeah, 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 Maxime, you're absolutely correct, which is the reason why I use my platform to, to, to talk about this on a regular basis. And I center my blackness as a way to understand Ukraine. 
as a way to understand Russia. One of the things that I say, and I know, Alexander, you can relate to criticisms and, you know, people making something controversial, which for the three of us is not controversial at all. Um, but I tell people that I understand Russian colonialism against Ukraine because I look at Russia as, I'm not Russia, America as a settler colonial state. You know, I look at America as one that's, you know, that that basically when you think about it's, it's, it's imperial influence around the world. Um, again, they're different, but they have similarities. And as a black person, I know how it feels to be suppressed in my own country. I know how it feels to be the other. And one more thing, I know, like you said, within a lot of the Russian discourse, and you can look at the literature and know, Alexander, you can speak to this. Ukrainians are not looked upon as an equal as as an equal person to you. Uh, um, Ukrainians are looked upon as equal in many respects, and there is a very racial lens through which um, a lot of Russian elites look at Ukrainians, little brother, little Russia, etc. Look, critical race theory that you mentioned, it claims essentially, like I, I will try to do it in a nutshell, that that race is not about color. Racial difference is culturally constructed. It is constructed by culture. For some, totally, you, you, for some, you would be white. You would look white. For some, like, for some, for some, you would look black. For some, you would look uh, gray. You know, it's constructed by culture, and uh, culture has many other ways to construct this colonial difference than the color of the skin, such as accent, language, religion face, uh, clothing, uh, say, say uh, uh, when uh, Peter the Great established his empire, he ordered all nobles to shave their beards, while the peasants and the clergy had, had were obliged to keep their beards. So that this difference was still, everyone was white. That was, as Maxim said, white on white. But this beard versus, versus shaved skin signaled the difference between you know men and men, uh, the exploited and the exploited. So culture has all these powers. Culture is very creative and inventive when it comes to uh, to racial difference. And I think we should. Uh, the, the challenge actually is to expand this concept of race. And the domain of critical race theory, so that we would also include like Scots in England, or say Italians under the Austrian rule, and um, and uh, and Siberians in the Russian Empire. Right. Another thing I want to touch on too. I'm writing a um, a report about Russia's militarization of the uh, the Arctic, the North Arctic because the Russians have their northern fleet up there. And in my research of this article, there were indigenous, you know, there are indigenous communities there. And so the Soviets had a very strong interest in the region. So did the, uh, you know, and also uh, leadership during the czarist period. But we often, right now, Russia talks about the Arctic as, oh, we have had, claim to this space for centuries but they colonized that too 
Absolutely, yeah. they colonized the Arctic, they colonized, they colonized the Urals, they colonized Siberia. And they, they colonized yeah. lots of space of the European Russia, because there were all kinds of Finn Tatars and other strange you know, people who were also absorbed, meaning raped or married to uh, by the Russian invaders. Um, yeah. Yeah, a, yeah, 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 I wanted to add that this is a great point because, you know, in this current cycle, when you read anything about um, Russian military flex and stuff, it sometimes you get a you get an impression that what is whatever is happening is happening just for the first time ever, and it ignores these centuries, centuries of colonial dynamic in the region, and that's why, you know, when we started this conversation, Tyrell, you know, asked about the feeling, how you feel, and we uh, chatted about the. Um, uh, how it's uh, perceived a more in alerted fashion abroad, uh, the emergency than back in Ukraine. And I think part of the reason is because we've been dealing with this shit for centuries and we've been through much worse. We've been through Holodomor genocide, Kremlin orchestrated genocide that killed, you know, almost third of the Ukrainian people. We've been through centuries of colonial rule of, you know, subjugation of our identity and culture and language. As a person who lived in Moscow, I can tell you, I mean, yeah, I, you know, despite that I have some, you know, Asian and Roma roots, I pass, it's very white, but then even as a white passing person in Moscow, I would feel racism on, you know, on myself every day because I wouldn't speak the same way, I wouldn't look the same way and stuff like that. So this is not a new situation and people outside who are interested in it should kind of yeah just uh, i'm not saying like reading academic uh papers and doing a lot of research although that's always great and alexander is amazing because he wrote so much stuff on this topic in such a comprehensible digestible way but then it's just one google search away people it's not a secret this is something you can really educate yourself and not being so arrogant about it this is a colonial empire in plain sight still operating and we should be talking about it instead of just another breaking news cycle you know and and yz number of troops were moved from far to east this has much deeper history yeah so alexander one of the challenges i have as a journalist and maxime can definitely relate to this because we're in the media field it's difficult for me to explain Ukraine to a lot of mainstream people because, quite frankly, I feel like people don't want to get into what colonialism is because usually, like Maxime said, they talk about the number of tanks, etc. But I have to explain to them that if you don't look at this from a settler colonial framework, you're not going to understand what's happening. And I think that's why people are so confused. But also, um, Alexander, uh, what's happening in America is you have this resistance against history. You know very well that we have a number of states, namely in the South, that have created laws dictating that critical race theory cannot be taught in schools when, in fact, it was never taught in schools. This was a graduate level course 
um, that was created by a number of scholars, and I know a number of them who, who are involved in it, who are critical race theorists, even law school. You know, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, who was a lawyer and, you know, who's at uh, Columbia is one of the leading, arguably the leading critical race theorists. And I think that she as a black woman would definitely appreciate this conversation because she understands racial lenses very much through us. She focus, focuses on black people, but everything she says can be applied to Ukraine. It can be applied to Russia and elsewhere. And so why is it that people are so resistant against the teaching of history, Alexander? Well, I think that's a great question, but also that's a great challenge. And it would be fantastic if you say you could uh, organize a dialogue uh, conversation between, say, us and uh, American black theorists. Yeah. I'll do that. Hey, listen, that's going to happen. Go ahead. I think that is a kind of either misunderstanding or not full understanding on both sides. And the deep reason for that, you, you asked me about the reason, the deep reason for this is kind of still not overcome, not fully digested legacy of racism. That the very, very idea that black and black on black and white racism is the, is essentially different from white on white race, racism. The very idea of this difference is also racism, and we should work on that. Yeah, absolutely, Maxine. What are your thoughts about that? Look, I I think that. Like as a journalist, I believe that the only way for people to to engage people in some story, and especially in this day and age of social media where everyone is overwhelmed already with a number of stories, is empathy. And this is what I find strikingly lacking when it comes to story, my story and story, my people and my region. I cannot understand why people cannot extend the same uh, courtesy of empathy to our stories and our voices. And I think maybe racism or similar dynamic is at play there because some people do not just see me as equal, as equal human being. But this is something I would really love people to think about. When we share our stories and our understanding who we are as a people or what we feel is unjust or how do we feel we're being uh, ruled and manipulated and oppressed for centuries? Why do you think that these kind of views are not valid or you can dismiss them? You don't have to agree with them, but dismissing them and refusing to listen to them, I think it's a major red flag that you kind of need to, need to check with yourself why by default i think when a person is ukrainian or talks with an accent deserves less of my empathy as a human being that someone who like looks more like me and talks like more like me and this is something that i'm trying to uh fight and overcome and i believe that through empathy and empathy is a good storytelling um I think we can try to make people think, not maybe about 
uh, too much to dig deeper into history, which is, I feel like sometimes is just too much to ask from people, which is extremely tragic. But only just thinking about simple things as, as, as like that, uh, why I cannot extend my empathy to someone because of the way they look or speak or because of the place they come from. And this is very concerning. A lot of people should double check them on that. Absolutely, Maxime. So Alexander, I just want to close out by asking you, because it's at the top of my mind, as a Russian, you could be viewed, and listen, I can imagine people look at you as saying, how dare you say this about us? How dare you call Mother Russia a colonial state? How dare you, you traitor? What type of, how, how do you feel being a leading scholar on this subject? Because Russia has a lot, uh, far more, um, we have critical race theory that's being suppressed, but none of this compares to the suppression of intellectual thought uh, that you have in Russia. So just personally, how have you been attacked and how have you been criticized? Because it must be difficult for you because you're striking against the machine in ways um, that few people do. Well, well, first I'm, I'm Jewish. That's one thing. I'm, Rus I'm oh, Russian yeah, Jew. I'm Russian Jew from St. Petersburg. That's one thing. I'm an emigre. I, I, you know, for the last 20, 25 years of my life, I live in the West. Um, um, I, I, I never considered myself a political emigre, more like a gastarbeiter. I'm just, you know, teacher teaching where, where they pay and refuse to teach where they don't. But, um, but more and more, increasingly, I feel myself as a political emigre. And of course, I'm very critical. I don't feel myself as a traitor, but I, I am a critic. And moreover, I, I, like if I have like two more minutes, Carol, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I should say that, yeah, I agree with Maxim that very much that, uh, you know, good stories, they, um, they, uh, they, they uh, are born of empathy and they create empathy. Uh, but also uh, political calculation is also important. And, uh, you know, while all this enormous Russian might is, has been now focused uh, on Ukraine, Say, say Terrell, you, you told the story about the uh, northern fleet in the Arctic, but now this huge uh, ships and uh, cannons and all that, they are basically, they are uh, in the Mediterranean, ready to land uh, the troops or shoot onto Ukraine. So there is no troops in the Arctic, no troops in this huge border with China, no troops in the Caucasus. So this huge empire, which was traditionally, you know, integrated and guarded by the Russian Imperial Army, the Soviet Army, the Army of the Russian Federation, basically is naked nowadays because everyone, everything is focused on Ukraine. So Ukraine, I think, this events in Ukraine, whether they will be a shooting war or what will be a long, long-standing cold confrontation, Ukraine could trigger an actual disintegration of the Russian Federation. And if this process will start going, of course, it will happen according to ethnic or racial differences. 
So these old colonies that were, you know, that were um, uh, that, that, that were that were taken uh, three hundred years ago, one hundred years ago, fifty years ago, they would claim uh, independence, and that 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 will be a major turmoil, uh, which will bring us back to the same basic issues of race, ethnicity, and colony. Definitely. Uh, Maxim, you want to add in something? Go ahead. Yeah, I, I just quickly add, because I agree with uh, Sasha so much on it. I think that even for Ukrainians, it looks insane overreaction of what is Kremlin is doing with bringing all those troops. It just looks very hysterical. But also, if you look at the events that happened in Ukraine in recent years, or over 80 years, even more, this awakening is something that we discuss inside Ukraine a lot about colonialism. Uh, again, opening our eyes on the dynamic between Russia and us in the last 400 years and how all this was really messed up uh, in a very colonial way. I think this is what scares people in the Kremlin. And because it already resonates with so many people in former Russian colonies and inside Russia as well, we've seen the same uh, slogans used in Minsk, in, uh, in Khabarovsk, in, you know, in anywhere, anywhere else across the former uh, empire. And I think that's why they're putting every effort possible to break the spine of this awakening and to convince the rest of the world that there is no awakening whatsoever. And that's why yeah, we see this uh, just insane overreaction um, because they know this is a make or break moment for the empire. Um, I'm not saying it's gonna happen in two days or two decades, but it is happening. Absolutely, listen, Maxime Alexander, uh, thank you both very much for coming on my show and talking about this subject. I think that we need more people asking questions about colonization as it applies to Russia and how Russia views its neighbors. And I'm really happy that you both trusted me to host this conversation because it's very dear to my heart. It's something very personal to me because I view this, this region through the lenses that you both have. And I'm happy that you've taken time to share your expertise. And I'm going to use this conversation amongst the many that we will have. I'm going to buy your book, Alexander, the one that I cited, um, and read that and apply it in my book. And uh, Maxime, I'm going to amplify your work. And there may be an opportunity for us to get on Twitter and have a spaces about this to have a further conversation. I will bring the the black theorist on that would probably be a good opportunity to do that so i'm going to organize that but i just want to say thank you uh maxine you're my friend who i love very much you you know i've told you you know you know me well and alexander i admire your work thank you, thank that, you. Was, that was a great conversation and a great opportunity I appreciate having Maxime and Alexander on the show because when we talk about Ukraine, colonialism is rarely discussed in mainstream media, but it's really an important angle through which we can 
understand why Putin is so obsessed with Ukraine and why the country is in the state that it's in in regards to its relations with Moscow. This definitely won't be the last show where we explore this subject in detail, so stay tuned for more on that. To better help me keep the knowledge coming at y'all like this, and at a very critical period in which Russia is ramping up its aggression against Ukraine, I'm going to need y'all's support. My producer Michael and I are working very hard to keep these episodes coming each week, and we actually want to improve them. So if you can kindly go to Black Diplomats Patreon and support us there, I'd greatly appreciate it. And you can also go to your favorite podcast platform, preferably iTunes, and leave a five-star review. Those reviews really help with the algorithm and get the podcast noticed. And I'm also on all the socials, so please follow me on Twitter at Russian underscore star and on Instagram at Terrell J star. That star with two R's on both handles. Thank you so much again for tuning in and talk to y'all next week.